I had a supporting member write in and ask a complicated question. I'm going to share that question with you, and I'm going to try to work through it in in this podcast. The main idea of the question is, if God grants repentance, we know that repentance is a gift granted by God, and if God grants repentance, then what's the point of me doing anything until God grants it? Because it doesn't matter what I do, because the person is not going to change until God grants the gift of repentance. It's an excellent question, and there are many layers to it, And so I'm going to try to work through those layers in the podcast. Welcome to Your Daily Drive. I'm Rick Thomas. I'm so glad that you are here. If you want to read what I'm going to share with you in this podcast, then go to the article on our website. The title of the article and this podcast are the same. It's called, Why Should I Disciple If God Has to Grant Repentance First? Let me read to you what our supporting member sent in to me, and then we will go from there. He said, I have been counseling an unrepentant person for the past six months. My question is, how do you balance his lack of repentance with my call to help him to change? Since God grants repentance, according to 2 Timothy 2, 24, 25, 26, is this person a victim someone who can't do anything until God moves him to change. Of course, I don't believe that, but I'm wondering what role we both play in the process of change as we wait on the Lord to do the work in his heart. Should I be patient with him and not expect too much until repentance happens, which is the victim mentality, Should I kindly motivate him toward change, which moves along the line of discipline and leverage? Or maybe I should choose a balance between the two. What do you think? That is an outstanding question, and we are about to head off into the deep weeds. One of the most tedious and mysterious questions you will ever ponder is the tension between God's role in our lives and our responsibility to respond to Him. Ultimately, the problem is unanswerable in a satisfying way, meaning you're not going to be able to gather all the data that's necessary to understand this problem thoroughly. It is the finite, you and me, we're trying to understand the infinite God. And at some point, there is a stop sign at the end of the road, and we just have to stop. We have to be comfortable with mystery. But but an unresolvable conundrum as this is, it doesn't mean we should refrain from thinking about such lofty topics. And so one of our supporters wanted to know how to help a person If repentance is a gift that needs God's preemptive interaction first. Now, this question, or there's actually a series of questions that he was asking me, is it's an intelligent, they are intelligent ones, and they have many different layers. And so if you're not familiar with the text that our supporter referenced, it will serve you well to study what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Every discipler needs to know how to apply these verses to those within their care 
practically. These verses are not the end all. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that as far as this discussion is concerned, but they are most definitely part of how you are to think about what this person is asking me. And so let me share with you what Paul told Timothy about this idea of God granting repentance. The passage of Scripture is 2 Timothy chapter 2, 24 through 26. There's a couple of sentences here. The first sentence says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. That's sentence one. The second sentence, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, these verses and the question at hand, they remind me of the chicken and the egg, which came first? Did the chicken come first or did the egg come first? Now, we, we know as far as chickens are concerned that the chicken came first. God created the chicken and the eggs followed. But we use this idea of the chicken and the egg to communicate a complex situation. And as it pertains to the questions that are being asked to me, if I repent, did God grant it to me? before my humble action? Or does my initiation cause the Lord to give me the gift of repentance? Do I move the Lord into action as though I'm the primary causal agent in my repentance? Or does he do a pre-work in my heart before I respond to him? Now, I'm going to go ahead and answer this question according to my theological understanding, up front. And then I'll try to work through it through the remainder of the podcast. So let me answer the question that's being asked here, this mysterious puzzle, which came first, the chicken or the egg. Here it is. If an individual repents of their sin, if they do repent of their sin, it is God who did the pre-work in their heart to bring them to the place of repentance. Whether you're talking about salvation or sanctification, the Lord was on the scene before you were drawing you to a place of confession and forgiveness. That's my answer. But here's what I want you to hear, because the questioner is asking this, these ideas of passivity. As a discipler, should I just do nothing and, and wait on the Lord? What about a victim mentality, which he said he did not believe? You know, the disciple could take the position of a victim. I'm just a victim. I'm not responsible. There's nothing for me to do until God grants repentance. And so, As I answered the question, God was on the scene before you were, drawing you to a place of confession and forgiveness. God's leading role in the story arc does not mean you are an unimportant unimportant actor with no responsibility in the process. Though God is the leader, 
the active agent, the primary cause. Repentance is a cooperative effort. But the first point that for you to nail down is who begins the process of change. Did you believe first, and then God made you alive, or did God bring you to the place of repentance so you could trust him? Now, I want to give you two illustrations of how I have arrived to my conclusion. There's not the only two illustrations in the Bible, but it'll illustrate my point. I want you to reflect upon how Paul answered this question about the chicken and the egg. Did God grant repentance first, or did I come to repentance and God moved afterward? He said this in Ephesians 2. I'm going to give you part of verses 1 through 5, not the entirety of 1 through 5. You can read all five verses if you wish, but here is the gist of it. He said in Ephesians 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It could not have been both of you, God and you, initiating an action at the same time. And as you hear in the Ephesian passage, God made you alive. You were dead. God is the initiator in this idea of repentance. You perceive this truth acted out in real life with the story of Lazarus in John eleven forty three, where Jesus called the dead man from the grave and Lazarus responded to the call of Christ. Dead people, physically or spiritually, cannot initiate anything until someone acts on them to make them alive. And so that's my answer to the question. But now he's, he's, he's introducing some words here that we want, to, we want to talk about. Passivity is one of them. Victim is the guy a victim. He can't do anything. What is my role in the responsibility? Now, I'm going to tell you up front that if you bury yourself in the theological weeds of this tension, you will get lost And you may conclude that the unrepentant person is a total victim because he cannot do anything until God acts on him. But scriptures teach a different story. Every person has a cooperating responsibility in the repentance process. I want you to use those two words, cooperating responsibility. You're cooperating with the initiator. You have a responsibility. We are not hapless victims with no responsibility for the decisions that are before us, the decisions that we that we have to make. Common sense tells you that an irresponsible victimhood posture, it cannot be accurate. We would not put that label on any person, that you are an irresponsible victim and your decisions don't matter. Now, Adam did try to play the, I am not responsible. 
victim card, but it was morally wrong for him to do so as he was blaming his wife and just throwing down excuses left and right. He made a deliberate choice to sin when his wife offered him the forbidden fruit. Eve initiated the action, but Adam cooperated with it. He's not a, he was not a robot incapable of making moral choices. And though you are a victim, at least in three ways, I'll talk about that. You are a victim. I am a victim. At least in three ways, you you also must make the right choices regardless of your circumstances or regardless of the actions of others. You have a cooperating responsibility. Here's the three ways that you and I are victims. One is Adam's fall. Adam fell. Adam sinned because sin came in the world. We're, We're born this way. The condition of your soul is total depravity, which means there is nothing about you that is pure. That's happened to you. That's something that someone did to you. And and in that sense, in the most technical sense, you you could say you are a victim. You're also you're a victim of what of what other people have done to you. Living in fallen environments with fallen people, it bends you, it shapes you negatively. To say that you were not influenced adversely by the sinfulness of others is is ridiculous. You have no option but to live with fallen individuals. And so in a sense, you are victimized by the fall of Adam, you're victimized by the sins of other people, and you're victimized by the choices that you make. You have and you continue to make sinful choices that adversely affect you. And so when the writer, when the question asker is asking me, is this person a victim? Well, well, no, not in a hapless sense, but I'm not going to throw victimization out the window as though it's not a reality. We are victims. But what I would say to you, rather than getting hung up over the word victim, or over the word passivity, as far as your role in the discipleship process, it would be more productive to think about personal responsibility, the cooperating effort. Let me use an illustration from my life to to demonstrate how to define the complexity of victimization and the need for the right response, though you could easily insert stories from your own experience here to make a similar point. But here's one illustration from my life. My father was an alcoholic. He drank himself to death by the time he was 42 years old. I was 19 years old when my daddy died. When the paramedics came to our home to haul his lifeless body to the morgue, I felt little sadness as I stared at the sheet that covered his body as they rolled him out the back door. His, his physical and verbal abuse was relentless. Now, mercifully, my Heavenly Father replaced what my dad did to me with the gospel. My heart found grace and peace where turmoil used to churn daily. I was a victim. This is what I was talking about, living in fallen environments. Yeah, I was a victim to my my dad's brutalities, but I was a responsible and free moral agent who had the opportunity to choose how I would respond to him. 
And so there's an element of victimization as this person waits on God to grant repentance, but that person can't sit there like a a lifeless dud and be irresponsible because irresponsible victimhood is not an option or it shouldn't be an option. But let's say, we're talking about shaping influences, but let's turn the shaping influence coin over and let's look at the positive side of what people do to you. You see, you have a similar responsibility to respond in the right way. You still have a cooperating responsibility, regardless of what others do, positively or negatively. You cannot be a passive actor. Now, from a discipler's perspective, I've I've been talking about the person that you are counseling. They can't sit there and just say that I am a victim. But from a discipler's perspective, you want to be, you don't you don't want to be passive. You want to be a positive influencer. Of course, that's part of your question. And so your friend cannot be passive, and neither should you. And so as I talk about this idea of cooperating responsibility, there are three active agents working in this possible repentance context. The three active agents in this order are the Spirit of God, the discipler, and the disciplee. The Spirit of God is the one who initiates. The Spirit of God is the one who brings change if repentance is going to happen. He's the primary cause. But again, you're not passive. The discipler is the one God uses as his agent to bring his word to bear in the person's life. And then we have the individual that you are discipling or counseling. They are not a total victim, and they are not, they cannot be passive. They are the ones that's that is receiving God's care, and they have to be responsible. They have to choose. The discipler's job is to be a positive shaping influence on the person that he is leading to God. The discipler does this by yielding himself to the Spirit of God and to God's Word. Every believer Now, I know that this person who's writing here believes this. He's not asking the question in a hostile or antagonistic way. He's just down in the theological weeds of this complexity, and thus he's asking the question. And so he knows that that he wants to yield himself to the Spirit of God. He wants to yield himself to the Word of God. He wants to be a portal for God's mercy to work through him as the Lord penetrates the heart of the individual who needs to change. In his question, he asked three things. Uh, he, he, he asked, does the person wait on the Lord until God acts? And then he asked, should I be patient with him and not expect too much and until repentance happens? Or should I motivate him uh, toward change? And, and then his third uh, uh, question that he asked, he says, or maybe I should choose a balance between the two. 
And that is really the right answer. Yeah, you're waiting on the Lord to grant repentance, but you're also wanting to motivate this person to change. You want to be that that portal that God uses as he works through you to penetrate and, and, and grant repentance this to this individual. It would be easy to get caught inside the chicken and the egg trap. I understand that. I've been there myself. When you think about sovereignty and human responsibility, which is what we're talking about here, you can get caught inside that which comes first, and it can be paralyzing. Do I do something? Do I wait on the Lord? There is a mystery there, and there is no doubt about that, and nobody will solve this problem adequately. There have been thousands of sermons and and probably thousands of books written on this subject. But what you do know, this is what you know. And you, when, when you're stuck in a mystery, you have to work with what you know, not with what you don't know or can't know. And what you do know is that there are three actors, and these three actors must work together. The first actor is God. God is the primary cause that grants repentance. You see this tension in Joseph's story in 5020 of Genesis. It's that Joseph is telling his brothers, what you did, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And you see this idea of primary cause and secondary cause in that passage. You see the tension there. You also see it in Peter's sermon in Acts 2, where he said that it was God's plan to put Christ to death, and then he says later that you crucified him. You see that too, you see that mysterious tension there between the primary cause and the secondary cause, the people who put him to death. And so it would be right in Joseph's case to say that God caused all this to happen because he was the primary cause. He was working a grander plan in Joseph's life. But he used secondary causal agents. He used his brothers to bring about his plan. You see the cooperating responsibility there. And you see it also in uh, Peter's sermon. It would be accurate to say that the Lord crucified his son. And it's, Isaiah stated that clearly in 53.10, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. But then he used people to bring it about. And so there are three actors that must cooperate together in this process. Number one, God is the primary cause that grants repentance. Number two, you have a responsibility to share God's word as a disciple maker. And then number three, the hearer is responsible for how he responds to the word. In 2 Corinthians, Paul said this, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have a responsibility. Paul goes on to say, that is, in Christ, 
God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. God, the primary cause agent, reconciling the world to himself, using ministers of reconciliation as he entrusted the message to us. Paul said it another way in Romans 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Not to step up to the responsibility of soul care is to miss the point of the gospel. Now, I'm not saying this to the individual who's asking the question, because as I've said, he gets it, he understands, he's just wallowing in the theological weeds right now, but he knows he has a responsibility, and he's not going to be passive at all. But perchance, you have that notion going around in your mind not to bring God's word to bear on a person who needs to hear it is high treason. It is one of the most unloving things a Christian could ever do. If we don't bring God's loving care to others, we are betraying the death of Christ on the cross, who died for the very purpose of changing lives. God enlists you and me in that process of change. As Paul said, we are ministers of reconciliation. And so you must view the way God grants repentance through a multi-perspectival lens. It's the discipler, it's the disciple, or it could be an unregenerate person, not a disciple at all, but a person that doesn't know the Lord and you're doing evangelism. But it's the discipler, it's the disciple, and it's the Lord. It's all three which is the recipe for repentance. I can't tell you all the intricacies of this mystery, but I do know we all have a cooperative role, and your job is to be faithful in sharing God's Word with others. Uh, Two other passages of Scripture that will be helpful in this matter as far as you want to kill this idea of passivity and irresponsibility from the disciples' perspective. In Galatians 6, Paul says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, the word spiritual, what he's saying is you who are Christians. To people who are spiritual or those who have the spirit, the natural person does The natural person is dead in their trespasses and sins. They are not spiritual. But brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you Christians, meaning every one of us who named the name of Christ, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then in Matthew 18, you have this. If your brother sins against you, go. I like that. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone meaning don't do it on Facebook. Don't correct and critique people on Facebook. Don't gossip about other people behind their backs. You go, tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother, but if he does not listen, well, okay, now bring two, one or two others along that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. 
It's when I attempt to stretch the three actors out, God, the discipler, and the disciple and sequence them in a way that I can understand it. That's when my mind explodes. What I do know is that God is the primary cause, and I'm the secondary cause. He does his job. I have to do my job, and I trust the Lord will grant repentance to the person whom I am serving. The title of this podcast is, Why Should I Disciple If if God Has to Grant Repentance? You do have to land the plane on this idea. If you want to read this podcast, I appeal to you to read it, to share it. You can go to the bottom of it, hit the print button, and you can print it off, and and you can have a a wonderful discussion with a small group of friends, and, and that would be fantastic. I do have some questions in the call to action as we typically have under at the end of all of our articles, and I would love for you to work through them. Let me ask a couple of them to you now. When you sequence the repentance process, which does come first? Does God act and then the person repents? Or does the person initiate repentance and then the Lord moves on them. Now, this is a watershed question as far as theology is concerned. And where you land on it will roll out into so many at a granular level in your theological understanding and application and how you relate to other people. And so it is important, as I said, you do have to land a plane on this matter. And so when you sequence out the repentance process, which does come first, when you, when you have that order, does God act? person repents, or does the person initiate repentance and then the Lord moves? Now, question number two, do you see yourself as an active agent in the evangelism and discipleship process? Are you actively doing that? Are you doing what Jesus said in Matthew 18, go and talk to that person, or Matthew 28, the Great Commission that you know so well, go and make disciples. I ask you a closed-ended question. You could say yes or no. Do you see yourself as an active agent in evangelism and discipleship? Yes or no. But here's the open-ended question. What does that look like or how does what does that look in your closest relationships? What about your local church? What about your community? How does your active evangelism and discipleship, how does it work out in your life? If you'd like to talk to us about any of this or read the rest of these questions, you're welcome to do, do so. Thank you for listening. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.